0: Elizabeth is a crowdfunding securities attorney who represents investment companies, small businesses, nonprofits, co-ops, and other social enterprises with the legal strategy and compliance of raising capital from both accredited and non-accredited investors. Her most recent work includes assisting a driver-owned rideshare cooperative with the legal compliance of its 1.07 million Get crowdfunding offer through regulation crowdfunding. Similarly, she assisted a number of cooperatives with their governing documents, bylaws, operating agreements, articles of incorporation, in order to prepare them for an upcoming capital raise from non member investors. She also assisted a number of investment funds with the securities legal strategy and compliance of a SEC Rule 506C crowdfunding offer including a cooperatively owned investment fund that offered two million in equity to accredited investors as well as a community development financial institution that offered one million in slow equity to mission aligned accredited investors currently elizabeth is on the board of directors of the co-op ed center and serves on a number of advisory boards including advisory boards of seaway a division of Self-Help Federal Credit Union, National Public Housing Museum, and the Lawndale Christian Community Development Corporation of Chicago. She also serves as a director of community planning and economic development of the 20th Ward Alderman Jean Taylor's office in Chicago, Illinois, and is a visiting professor at the University of Illinois Chicago School of Law. Elizabeth, what an incredible bio, and I'm just so thrilled because I love cooperatives, I've lived in cooperatives, <laughs> and it sounds like I have one of the, the experts here to, to speak with for a bit.
1: Well, thank you, Matt. No, I, I can't thank you enough. I really, I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation and you know, anytime there's an opportunity to speak about co-ops, on behalf of co-ops and and you know to really just to serve co-ops and other community driven initiatives, I'm I'm always glad to. So I'm just happy to to be a part of this podcast and just to be a part of the overall cooperative community in general.
0: Awesome. So let's kick it off with the first question here. How did you kind of stumble into regulation crowdfunding? And how do you think it's kind of instrumental in fighting perhaps some social injustices and climate change? How how did you get to being a cooperative securities lawyer?
1: So I started off actually with co-ops. When I was an undergrad and be prior to, I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer even before I knew what a lawyer did, right? I think I knew what a You know, we always see criminal attorneys on TV, maybe corporate attorneys. But it wasn't until, honestly, towards the end of my undergraduate career where I went to University of Michigan, um, I studied political science, African-American studies, and I in philosophy. So, I mean, that's a liberal arts education. I mean, I knew I was going to law school, right? Like, what are you going to do? I mean, shouldn't say that. But (laughs) for the most part, you know you're going to, you know, graduate school after that. But it wasn't until the end of that when I actually got introduced to urban planning. Um, and I, at that time, I was my in my senior year, and I'm like, well, I, I already I can't do it now. I'm ready to graduate. I have all my credits. I actually have more than enough credits to graduate. I said I'll do a grad program, and so that's where I decided to do a dual degree in law and urban planning, with the intent of having urban planning sort of as a subject matter of law. Um, so that involved housing finance, development, redevelopment, you know, anything to do with um, urban communities um, development. And so I just knew I was going to, you know, be a transactional attorney. I knew I didn't, that meant I was not really going to be a lawyer that engaged the courts or litigated, right? And so from there, I just sort of, you know, found my way eventually to co-ops. And it was when I was interning at the South Brooklyn Legal Services, and I had a brilliant uh, supervisor who actually was a community organizer prior to becoming a lawyer and he was organized a group of low-income tenants in Brooklyn to take over their building through a receivership um, because the landlord was a slumlord. And I was just fascinated by the thought of that because meanwhile, this is a summer internship. I'm going back and forth to Brooklyn um, Housing Court and just realizing the inequities in that court. You know, most of the litigants or the tenants that were up for eviction were Black and Latino. And then most of the landlords were white. And white men, for the most part, and their lawyers are white men. And so you saw the racial, right, poverty or racial, racialized class in Brook that part of Brooklyn alone. And so to see that Black and brown people were able to acquire their property instead of being evicted by it collectively, you know, something that fascinated me. It was like a, a true power switch in my mind. And in reality, it was a true power switch, whereas before, landlord-tenants truly in balance in terms of power. Um, and so, you know, I asked my supervisor, attorney, who's... Um, Michael Granthal, he's at the, uh, well, it used to be Urban Justice Center, but it's now Roots um, Justice now, um, but, you know, asked him, well, what is this, what are you, what is this, like, what is this thing called, and he said, oh, it's co-ops, and he gave me more literature to read on it, long story short, I just, like, learned more about housing co-op, that then went on to worker co-op, then went on to consumer and producer co-ops and then all of a sudden you know even going beyond and just venturing into and learning more about alternative economies in general which is where I came across crowdfunding and that was still while I was in school so when I just decided to practice eventually I found my way first representing co-ops or representing other agencies that supported co-ops such as when I represented the city of Newark and their um, initiative to uh, sponsor a housing development that was to be acquired by the uh, artists in the community as a co-op. You know, to then representing a, a housing co-op in the city of Newark that have been around since 1960s, right, and helping them maintain their affordability through tax abatements, and 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 again now in Chicago, you know, working closely with organizations that supporting worker co-ops, and then the biggest issue was, well, how do we? It's good to start them, but then how do we sustain them? And that's where crowdfunding comes. Crowdfunding to me is like a co-op. It's just a, a group of people regular people, neighbors, community members coming together, aggregating their resources for a particular resource in the community. And in this case, to support small business development or housing development in their communities.
0: I think that's a great uh, definition and really interesting background. One of, I think, the early examples of how successful co-ops can be, there's a number of student housing cooperatives in in Michigan um, that have been around, I think, since the 30s or
1: 40s? So it's funny you say that. My last year, I, I, I got introduced to two of the housing student housing co-ops. And even then, I still wasn't connecting the dots. I don't think it connected for me until I saw the sort of political nature of co-ops. Going back to the South Brooklyn legal services example, I didn't really see it as a tool uh, for anything that I wanted to do until I saw it as a, power, uh, a powerful tool for Black, low-income, marginalized Black and brown people to to uh, be productive, right? To be self-sustaining and sustainable. So, in the University of Michigan, you know, they were privileged students. You know, not really. So, I didn't see it as anything but oh, so how is somewhere where students live, right? I didn't. So, for me, I've always been a person. Why I wanted to go to law school was an advocate for for change. for positive change and for uh, to learn the law to be able to work on behalf of those that you know usually aren't benefited from the law. So, so I think that's. I'm glad you mentioned that though because I remember thinking to myself, well, actually, you knew about housing or co-op before but it really didn't click until like my first year of law school in, in Brooklyn.
0: Yeah, and it's one thing to work on a college campus, and it's another thing to work in something like housing in Brooklyn or the Bronx, much different power dynamics. And so what were kind of the reaction um, when when you bring up the idea of you know folks forming a co-op? Do people get it right away? Is there apprehension? Excitement. What what kind of is the the reaction when you start to bring up how durable and and powerful co-ops are for housing?
1: Really good question. Um, When I bring it up, especially when I was organizing around co-ops, so not even doing legal per se, I was. But so I started an organization called the Urban Cooperative Enterprise Legal Center in Newark, New Jersey, while I was there, um, right when I graduated law school. And right when I started to uh, work at the city of Newark, you know, I did a lot more organizing. I worked with um, various different types of organizers in the city from housing to prison organizing, urban gardening, farming, et cetera. And our our goal was to use those sort of traditional organizing um, skill sets and traditional organizing subject matters like landlord-tenant, for instance, tenant organizing and transform that into or connect that to co-op development. So in the case of landlord-tenant, um, how do we organize tenants around uh, to purchase their buildings, right? Through a housing co-op, or when in a case of uh, forming incarcerated individuals, how do we organize them to then form their own small businesses or worker co-ops, right? And so, so at the time, you know, it's, it was a very great idea for these people who are normally on the outside of power and money and, and aggregation of resources, right? Anytime you're mentioning a way to build power and to build resources and, and, and whether it's collectively or not, people listen. And, you know, I think people understand the, the. it's, it's really just, um, what do you call the logic? You know, if one person doesn't have enough to do, whether it's to start a business or to purchase housing or to even have enough to pay monthly rent, then you, you but, but 10 people do collectively in one pot that's a no brainer We all come together and purchase this building and then we save on costs, right? So people understand that as like, it makes sense. Um, but then the question was always, all right, but how? And I think the how has always been the hardest part because I think sometimes people think you just throw a bunch of money at it. I think, yeah, it gets you there, it gets you going, but the organizing and the cohesive unit amongst those people, is almost like having hundreds of business uh, co-founders. You have to be, you know, Together on it, right? You have to be understand like who's going to make decisions on behalf of what and who and, and and or is it everyone making collective decisions at the same time, right? And so you have to really get that down pat, and that's very hard. And it's very hard for people who are just trying to make ends meet. Or this is when I, you know, work on behalf of very low income people, and even when you talk about working class, right? People have to work. um The drivers co-op you mentioned that I represent. I mean, these are people who are working every day for a living, um, even if, you know, they're not considered in poverty. I mean, they, they, they're they working, and some of them are working class four, you know, and so at the end of the day, you're not talking about people who just privilege to sit down and plan and, and, and strategize all the time. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but that is the most challenging part, but as far as the idea, it's great, but how is always like, okay, well, let's figure this out, and it's not going to be easy, especially amongst Black and brown. I think it's easier when you talk about co-op in, in Oakland, for instance, um, that is, you know, composed of middle to upper class uh, members, right? That's different, right? They don't have, they don't face the same societal or, or issues that are, are preventing people to participate in building a company. Um, but, but also, I would say, so that's, you know, it's not hard, but I would say when I'm in the security space, the venture capital space, just the raising capital space in general, <laughs> the idea of co-ops is not so so attractive. Um, I think because for so long, you know, particularly the, even the idea of founder, the word founder is very individualistic. One person making it to the top, one person receiving all this, this capital, the pitch competition, only one person can win, right? So when you start talking, no, oh, how about making sure that everybody gets some piece that is very, very um, um, either unheard of or just not suited to particularly those who hold the power, those who have the money. So long wonder web of answer your question that. On one hand, it's great. It's really really well-received. On the other hand, not so much depending on what rooms you're in, especially when it comes to power and who has power and who doesn't. All
0: right. Absolutely. Uh, You know, there's definitely a knowledge equity component um, for different groups navigating through the city and state permitting system to incorporate these entities to get the building permits and... There's so much resistance uh, faced by groups that really would benefit the most. Um, so that's why I think I'm so excited to talk to you because, you know, in watching co-ops, um, as I mentioned, I've lived in—I lived in a student housing co-op actually—and um, interestingly, it was started by students. But um, and it had twelve rooms and. When I moved in, there was only two students there, and um, it's kind of interesting how it kind of became such a bastion for affordable housing. But what what I'm rambling my way to asking is, you know, the the problem I think that I saw with co-ops was if you don't have any money, you're living pay to to paycheck to pay your rent, and one paycheck away from homelessness in a lot of cases. The idea of forming a co-op and buying a $2 million building with 12 units is really pie in the sky, I think. And so how, how can you actually capitalize co-ops um, if the people who are living in them don't have money to buy the asset?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I like to go back to an historical, not so historical, but historical, historical example in New York. In the 70s, New York was on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, and, and the city of New York at that time became the largest slumlord out of anyone in the whole United States. And that is because, because of financial crisis, a lot of the landlords or, or property owners were fleeing the city or just were just not paying their taxes and they were abandoning the buildings. Meanwhile, people were still living in them, and so at the time, because of taxes, you know the city is acquiring these properties now they now the city owns it because of lack of bad due taxes. but the city of New York is not equipped or any city uh, any government agency any any particular agency, especially that that many that much housing, is not equipped to manage housing in that way so. What happened was a lot of these, these places went disrepair. Um, so, But as a result, the tenants started to organize themselves uh, um, with support from other organizers and groups to start really coming together to, to fix up their own buildings, to really basically manage it themselves to the point where the city of New York instituted a program called the, um, the uh, TIL program, the Tenant Interim Lease Program. And basically, their pro- and, t- and it still exists today. So what the program did was provide government subsidies to help acquire the building, help rehab and acquire the building. And then the tenant just had to put at that time was $250. Um, but now it's, I believe the program is about $2,500. Each member has to pay to buy in. It's sort of like your down payment. Um, and and then from there on, you have to, the, the building itself or the co-op, the corporation owns the building. So let's go back. Collectively, the tenants own the corporation and the corporation owns the building. The building then is um, has a, a long-term what they call like a financial agreement um, that, that requires the buildings to remain affordable for 40 years, at least 40 years. So a lot of these buildings, as you can imagine, since, since 1970, are no longer under that sort of financial restriction. So those same members or their family that it has passed down to are now cashing out, um, selling their units for 400K and plus, um, really getting that equity that's on top. Meanwhile, others have decided to renew that um, sort of uh, agreement to maintain affordability so that it can, you know, affordability and affordable housing can maintain in the city of New York, especially a place like New York, where affordable housing is far and is far between. Um, and so I say that to say that you're absolutely right, that co-ops help, right, uh, alleviate some of the, so the, the issues with capitalism and issues with sort of financial inequities, particularly when it comes to race and class. Um, however, it doesn't take it out of the system entirely, meaning the the house of cost the cost of housing still remains the same, the cost of construction still remains the same, et cetera, et cetera. And so then the question is, well, what do what's needed? Um, so my work at the city of Newark when I was there as uh, project manager and lead counsel of the Affordable Housing Development Project, which was then to be converted to a co-op, housing co-op, um, was to have the government agency help sponsor Right to help provide some of that subsidy. So, like I said, in the city of New York, um, the program still, I believe, in New York there's like a $10 million grant. There's some other funding from some other nonprofit, and then the rest is it's recouped by the tenants collectively. Now, these are like units or buildings that are that housing two to 400 people, right? Um, but so, so as you can imagine, that's it's better to have that many to help save on the cost. But either way, with the cost of housing and building development. I believe that it needs something needs more needs to be done to help offset those costs, and that more needs to be through government support um, and other sort of maybe foundational support. Because otherwise, go back to 1970, in New York City, you have bankruptcy, you have uh, poverty, you have you know just a human human disaster, right? Something needs to be done in order to prevent that type of waste um, and that type of human uh,
0: degradation. Absolutely, I. I have to imagine the purpose of government and the economy is to make sure that <laughs> people take care of their most basic needs and co-ops are a very powerful structure to do that i appreciated that history i didn't know that um it's a really fascinating story i'd love to dig, dig more deep deeply into um if if you do have any references or books i'd uh, send them along after i'll, I'll take a look uh, Yeah, I I think, you know, there's this, it's kind of like school districts, right? It's like, you know, in areas of low income, uh, less expensive properties, you have less property taxes and you have, you know, more schools (laughs) because the property taxes go to schools. And so how can you, you know, break that cycle? And, um, you know, as a, as can can I actually, like, if I don't live in a co-op, can I actually like invest in a co-op? Um, and what does that look like, and and how does that help kind of the founders and the members of the co-op itself? Yeah,
1: good question. Um, it's funny I, when I was working uh, for the co-op in Newark, um, one of the questions about outside investors did come up, and I think it's a little harder to. I haven't quite, and I haven't seen anyone else really quite work out that that in housing co-ops. And the reason why I say that is now housing co-ops do get large mortgages like any other you know development right and they do receive you know outside funding or grant support or tax subsidies etc um so then what happens is the, the tenants have to then pay back through their monthly maintenance or their monthly uh you know costs right um but the idea is to try to keep it as low as possible if you're going to maintain low or in- uh, uh what they call limited equity or low income or affordable housing right but 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 either way, it's possible. You just have to add it to the cost and everyone shares it collectively. Same thing in a worker co-op sense. Uh, so the driver's co-op is a worker co-op and um, that the workers, i.e. the drivers that are providing labor, right, on to the company or to the co-op on behalf um, of um, in order to produce the profits that the company receives are also co-owners. Um, and so what they did was raise capital through debt. Debt is, again, just like if you have a mortgage on housing, it's a loan um, that has to be paid back over time. And in this case, it's paid back through their revenues, right? So there's different ways you can pay back. Obviously, you have, you know, your profits, Revenue is just another a formula, how, you know, when the money is paid back or what has to be paid first, you know, before the investors are paid, et cetera, or the creditors are paid in this case. Um, and so that's one way. So that is one way. It, it helps because co-ops, require that the members maintain full control and that it doesn't have a major investor sort of making decisions on his behalf or or controlling it, right? So debt, usually debt is not attached to voting. So that helps. If you were to acquire or to receive equity and investment um, instead of debt as a co-op, whether worker housing or otherwise, um, it's best to do it through non-voting shares. And to make those shares attractive, it's best to create preferred shares, right? So at least those investors get paid before the uh, members of the co op, right, and, and, and you know, after taxes, right, but before uh, the members and, and after any creditors there. there um, but so that's how you can do it. And there's been others that successfully raised both equity and, like I said, the driver's call raised at this time uh, 1.4 million through debt. Um, so they definitely poss- possible to do so.
0: So there's other things I can invest in besides the stock market if if I want to support. Worker-owned co-ops, I can not actually invest in them, which is really interesting. I I, I noticed that the um, the drivers co-op you mentioned was an entity type called business corporation, and one of the challenges that I've come across is that you know the co-op entities are different across every state. Could you tell me, uh, and if it's too legal um, technical, that's fine, um, or or you don't want to, but could. Could you tell me perhaps why the drivers co-op settled on a business corporation for their entity type?
1: Oh well, they actually they started off um, I think as a regular corporation, and then they converted to uh, an actual cooperative corporation in the state of New York. So New York, California, Denver I'm sorry Colorado and a number of other states have In Illinois, have actual statutes that pertain specifically to cooperatives, especially worker cooperatives. New York has about three, one for co-op, worker co-ops, consumer co-ops, housing co-ops. But you don't have to. Like I said, in New Jersey um, and and the state of Delaware, for instance, do not have uh, cooperative statutes. And so you will form under the normal, any business statute, you'll form on the LLC or a general corporation, you'll just have to put in your governing documents, i.e. the bylaws or operating agreement, those cooperative principles and cooperative sort of uh, investment structures where that collective one person, one vote is added in there. Um, but a lot, but the reason why people actually choose the co-op statute itself, particularly in New York, New York has a strong co-op community, um, and especially a strong worker co-op community. And so I think it makes it easier to connect with others in that community, including uh, funding sources because the city of New York, again, um, really, really supports co-ops um, and, and has, um, is starting to create programming for versus um, some procurement programming. I don't think it has been done yet, but that is some of the advocacy work around it. So I think people feel that if they are structured as a co-op, it provides solace, right, to those governing agents or funders that the principles that they all sort of abide by and support are going to be embedded in a statute legally, right? Can't be changed unless you dissolve the company, right? Um, and, and so that gives people assurance that you're doing exactly what these principles um, are, are designed to do, particularly, again, that it's only controlled by those that use the services and then there's that one person, one vote um, so that you remove that inequities based on who puts more money in. Um, so I think that's why, I think it's just a, a it, legally, Again, the non-co-op structure, legal structure can be done with General Corporate's LLC so long as you put those in there and, you, you know, really structure your, your bylaws and your operating agreement and such, but I think it helps solidify, particularly when the larger membership that you have, that, you know, when you do go in legally uh, through the statute, uh, that it it's provides the members assurance that it will remain as a co-op for perpetually, right, um, or at least make it harder to not be a co-op. I think that's
0: why they did it. Great, great. Thank you for the detail. Something that, um, so obviously we need more co-ops, so we want to make them happen. I think it seems like every co-op is, well, so, so first. So let me say, so it is interesting that you don't actually need to be in a state that has an entity type that's a cooperative corporation, you can enshrine those principles in your operating agreement and in your bylaws so that even if you're just a normal LLC, you can still design the very fabric of your entity um, to act that way. I think that's a that's a really powerful idea. So it seems like every co-op, we need more co-ops. Um, Uh, but everyone seems so different and takes so long to set up. How can we make the process faster? Is there a way to standardize the structure of a co-op so that we can have thousands of them next year? Um, Or are they by very nature bespoke and need kind of intensive work to launch?
1: I think we're so used to things being done quickly um you know especially with social media and internet um, but i think sometimes we, we miss some of those um so i'll take for example and you do have organizations that for instance convert say for instance matt you know you all decided let's say Ray's green uh, you know wanted to convert say you have me. i don't know 50 plus employees maybe 100 And then you're retiring, but say you're the only person that owns it and you're about to retire. You've been doing this for a while. Um, And and so someone comes to you and say, hey, have you ever considered selling the company to the workers? Uh, So, A, you already have a market already for your business, right? You don't have to go out and hire a broker or, you know, to kind of seek or, you know, you don't have to just close out the business, right? You can actually keep your legacy alive. Through the workers who've probably been there, especially, you know, when we talk about baby boomers, these, these companies and these business or employees have been there for decades, right? You know, this is just the way the nature, you know, us millennials, we move a little differently. But, you know, back then, people sit and they stay and they work forever <laughs> in one place. So so you have people who know the company, who's committed to the company. Now they're about to be fired because the, the fi- grandfather is no longer interested or just can't do it and there's no one to give it to, Right. So what there's companies that actually will convert that business to a worker co-op. However, what tends to happen, yeah, the conversion is legally successful, maybe financially successful, right? There's money exchanged, the entity is formed, the documents are drafted, yet the, the the employees may or may not understand that they're now co-owners of what that actually means, right? There's not enough training, there's not enough cultural sort of re-re uh, sort of, I don't know, um retraining or re-educating people around what it means to be a co-founder now or a business owner now and not just an employee especially being employee all these these years and so the problem with that is that you have a co-op in name and on paper but as far as changing and shifting cultures and shifting the community in a way that you know like you said have more co-ops because it's a it's great for our economy right it's great for our social uh, uh structuring yeah but people aren't they're not, they don't even know they're in a co-op right i've actually when i represent the housing co-op it's been around since 1960, it's 2020 or uh, 2021. And these people that are newer, let's say younger people, so just starting off, you know, maybe their first apartment, they, they really think they're just putting down a down payment on an apartment building. They don't come to the meetings to, to, to make decisions on behalf, they don't, you know, on behalf of the co-op as a whole and in their livelihood, they're not thinking that way because no one's training them or re-uh re-educating them about what it is that they're doing now. So I say all that to say that. I think we have to be careful with expediency over quality, right? But to to your point, I do think there's some things that can be done more efficiently. Um, and so uh, we don't have we do have like national organizations that try to sort of make things cohesive in a co-op world. Um, as far as documents like, for instance, um, operating agreements or bylaws, um, I'm not sure we have any one particular standard, although. I'm part of a fellowship community, a legal fellowship community through the Sustainable Economies Law Center. Um, And since I was in law school, right, so we needed some templates as lawyers to say, hey, I'm working with, you know, a co-op here in New Jersey. Um, Do anyone have any example bylaws? First, I'll ask New Jersey. Most likely they don't. Okay, well, do you have any at all? They'll say, well, I have some for California because every state is different in terms of their legal standard, right? So then from there, you just sort of work off of it, but have to conform it to the state of Illinois or New Jersey, if, if you're in New Jersey, right, if the in Jersey. So there's going to still be some tweaking and some application. You can still start off with a template, but knowing that every state is different. I think also to your question is, can we standardize state by state? Um, that would be a good question. I mean, right now, like, for instance, the securities, there's a there's a quasi government group called National Association of Security. Um, uh, agency regulated and NASA right, is what it's short for the, the acronym, and that is actually the state version of the SEC. If that makes any sense, not really because every state has its own sort of state specific SEC, but they've all imagine them all coming together as a whole to standardize their state specific process because some of these exemptions require state compliance in addition to federal, and RICIO does not. So uh, except for filing fees or notices, but let's say for instance Reggae Tier One. Um, or 504, right? These are crowdfunding exemptions that do require state compliance, and every state will differ. But with this NASA, the collective of some of these government agencies who participate, not all of them do, like New York really doesn't participate, but let's just say, you know, they do. It does help with standardizing some of those uh, specific requirements. But again, it doesn't take away from the need to look into the specific state rules to make sure that you, you cover all your bases. So, I don't know, I just think that the A, it's not really a yes to your answer, but I, is there a way to do it? I think it's a way to get more efficient, but I don't know if it's one of those sort of, okay, quick, 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 you know, we have legal zone, biz counsel, hurry up and do something really quick because what you're going to do is you're going to do it in a way that may or may not apply to that specific business, that specific needs.
0: That's something that I hope we can work with you on in the future. I think, you know, we're all about developing templatized workflows, so maybe, you can't have a standardized co-op for the US, but you might be able to set up kind of a template for housing in New York, and then maybe 100 people could copy that template. Um, we're almost up on time. Um, I'm sure I could <laughs> happily ask you questions uh, for much longer. Um, so I guess my last question is, you know, what should I have asked you? And I didn't.
1: I think maybe we can talk one last question about climate. I know you all are very big on climate and solar energy, and I know when we initially talked, we were discussing like how all of this relates, right, to equity, and particularly in communities. Um, when we think about, when I think about crowdfunding, I think about democ- democratization, right? Democracy, providing access to more people to take take part in investing, take part in business develop or business small business development, right? And then, you know, to take part into making sure, um, right, that we have energy sources that are more, that are more clean and more healthy for our environment and then therefore our communities. And then, you know, oftentimes when we see, you know, environmental issues, uh, they, they, you know, who bears the brunt of that are, again, Black, brown, and low-income people for the most part. So we have the issue of environmental injustice. And so, you know, I, I think that there's a way to connect all these issues of, particularly under the large umbrella of inequity, uh, whether it's climate, racial, environmental, or class, and, and, and pull them all together and come up with a solution um, through crowdfunding, through co ops to help eradicate, I'm not saying that it's, it's, it's strong enough or alone can solve, right, but can help move the, the needle closer to where
0: the future that we want to see. You know, if if the same people are owning the sustainable future, if you still have this extreme concentration of wealth and income inequality, whatever environmentally sustainable solution that comes about won't be socially sustainable. And I think that with co-ops, we have a chance to do both. So, you know, we're big fans of your work and we're looking forward to supporting you and and any folks you work with as well, if we can help. Uh, please do let us know. And I uh, really appreciate your time today. I hope you uh, stay warm over there in Chicago. I heard it's finally getting cold.
1: No, thank you, Matt. And thank you for your final words. Um, Yeah, I I think it's a big issue that a lot of us aren't thinking about. Um, And so, yeah, I look forward to working together as well to, again, do our part, right, to to solving the issue. And yes, it is cold in Chicago now. It hasn't snow, so it hasn't snow, um, but it is getting chilly. Um, oh, and I do want to correct NASA, I mentioned earlier is the acronym for North American Securities Administrators Association. <laughs> so so I didn't mess I did you know chop that up earlier, but you know, it's just I, I just want be just say NASA, but but again, sort of this <laughs> standardized <laughs> approach to securities. So yes, I think there is, is needed um, to help make it, especially when we talk about democracy, to make it more accessible. We do need to figure out a way to, to make this all make sense to people, right? So that they can uh, make intelligent and, and, and educated decisions around their choice to invest and then in their choice to create and start these social equitable businesses.
0: Wonderful, Elizabeth. Thank you again so much for your time. And uh, until until soon,
1: those that are interested, you can um, you know my web, the website for the firm, which is um, named after myself, uh, Elizabeth L. Carter Esquire LLC, our crowdfunding securities law firm, um, has a lot of great information and articles, particularly our blogs under our writing section on co-ops, uh, securities regulation, crowdfunding. Um, even something about cannabis and NFTs, you know, as they're becoming more and more relevant to our work are there. I definitely encourage everyone to visit the website at www.elcesq.com. Uh, just peruse. We, like I said, we have the writings, we have media, different videos where we, you know, um, are talking, you know, other podcasts such as this with different webinars, or we're just talking more about these issues. I think it's a type of topic that, you know, it'd be great for you, for anyone to get educated uh, first and foremost before deciding to venture in. So that's the best way I would say to reach out, um, you know, contact information is there. and I look forward to, you know, really speaking with anyone who's interested in raising capital through crowdfunding, uh, whether you have a cannabis business, a business, um, you know, solar generated business, et cetera, uh, any business really can raise capital through the crowd. So thank you
0: awesome and and please do do call her learn from her and support her elizabeth carter everyone Um, thank you again and we'll be in touch